0: Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, as well as a professor of economics and philosophy. His latest book, The Struggle for a Better World, explores how the social sciences and the political economy in particular help us understand society and its institutions of governance. It's my pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Peter Botek. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: I'm thrilled to be here. Uh, Thank you for this opportunity to
0: talk about our ideas. Firstly, I'd like to ask you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your research.
1: Uh, So, uh, you know, I'm I'm a professor of uh, economics at George Mason University, where I've taught since 1998. Um, I actually went to graduate school here at George Mason between 1984 and 1988, and I never thought I would ever come back uh, to George Mason. I taught uh, for the decade in between, <clears throat> mostly at uh, New York University, and uh, and then I had the opportunity to come back here and be part of this great economics community that we have here. I mean, George Mason is the home of two Nobel laureates in economics. Uh, we have a long and, and illustrious tradition of economic education here, and uh, just thrilled to be part of it uh, and work with my colleagues here. And I had the opportunity. Uh, to work with some fantastic graduate students um, and uh, and develop our uh, sort of a modern program in political economy that I think has produced a lot of uh, very interesting books that your readers would be interested in. One of the most recent ones is by Ben Powell, who is now a professor at Texas Tech University, but one time was my one of my PhD students, and he has a new book out on uh, immigration. It's called The Wretched Refuse, and it examines the theoretical and empirical arguments uh, having to do with immigration and the impact of uh, immigration on economic development and also on economic freedom. So uh, that's a great new book by Ben that I recommend uh, everyone to, to read to get a sense of the kind of style of work that, that many of us do.
0: Okay. So to start off, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit more about the Austrian School of Economics for our viewers who may not be familiar.
1: Sure. Um, So, you know, we, you know, as a whole, our research group is very uh, much influenced and uh, directly so by the writings of Karl Menger, who was an economist in the 19th century, uh, Ludwig von Mises, uh, who was an economist in the early 20th century, F.A. Hayek, who was his his student, uh, an economist of the of the mid twentieth century, and Israel Kirzner, um, who was a student of Mises as well, um, in the in the second half of the twentieth century, and we're trying to take those ideas and develop them and and work with them. And what are those ideas? Well, you know, they can be summarized in many ways by uh, three sort of ideas. This is a little. To maybe insider baseball for many of your listeners, but they go under the title methodological individualism, which means that the ultimate unit of analysis in economic uh, science is the, is the individual and their decision uh, uh, calculus. Um, that uh, methodological subjectivism, uh, that is, is that uh, it's the subjectivity of the values of costs of the uh, expectations of the knowledge that individuals have um, that matters the, the, in the social sciences. What matters is uh, what people uh, uh, think and, and believe rather than the idea of the objective properties of, of the chemical makeup of a good or whatever. And then uh, market process, which is the study of exchange and the institutions within which exchange takes place. so. If you allow me a second to just maybe summarize in a very simple way that might make sense to everyone, forget what I just said and just start with the economic proposition that we live in a world of scarcity, um, and we can't all get the uh, you know our desires met all at once just by snapping our fingers. You know, our, our we have unlimited wants and very limited means. As a result of that, we're going to have to economize on our decision-making. And in doing that, economizing, we make trade-offs, we negotiate trade-offs. In economics, there are no solutions, there's only trade-offs that we face. The trade-offs in the world are so complicated that in fact that we need aids to help us in being able to make those trade-offs. And in a commercial society, those aids to the human mind come in the form of property rights, which incentivizes us the prices that we face, which guide us, the profits that are realized in the market, which lure us, or the losses that are experienced in the market, which discipline us. And it's precisely this role of property prices and profit loss that the Austrian economists have done the most to unearth and study over its long history from the 1870s until today. And it's it's that aspect of the Austrian school, which is being further refined and developed as we go forward um, in in the current science of economic practice. So, um, you know, one last thing about the term Austrian is that, you know, it was given to the the school of thought by its enemies. Uh, The original Austrian economists were at the University of Vienna, and they were just developing economics and the german science uh you know uh, counterparts of them wanted to dismiss their contributions to economics and they referred to them as oh those are the austrians over there and so that's how the label got started the austrian school it was given to them by, the, by their uh intellectual opponents but then you know the people at university of vienna between 1870 and the 1930s you know embraced the term and understood it and was some of the leading uh Practitioners of economic science in the world, you know, be, besides Karl Menger, who's a founder of the Austrian school, but also Eugen von Bavrich and, and Friedrich Wieser, who were leaders, Joseph Schumpeter, uh, Ludwig von Mises, um, you know, uh, Oskar Morgenstern, who helped develop game theory. Um, um, you know Fritz Machla, uh, Godfried Hobler, and then of course F.A. Hayek, who won a Nobel Prize in economic science. And it's really the modern Austrian School migrated after the 1930s because of Hitler and uh, the, the the breaking up and the chasing out of, of Jewish intellectuals throughout Europe. And the Austrian School migrated first to the London School of Economics. Than to New York University, to the University of Chicago, uh, and various other places. And so when we talk about the Austrian school today, um, it owes a lot of its uh, origins to American practitioners like Israel Kirzner, but also uh, Murray Rothbard. and that's a more libertarian version of Austrian economics, um, and, and many people know about that. Um, kirzner is a, a more uh, value-free version of the science of economics uh, and development of the theory of entrepreneurship and you know and so you know the, the modern Austrian school um, has a lot of cross-fertilization with other schools of thought and, and other things. So anyway this is that's a, a long-winded but short version of an answer to your question. I hope it makes sense to some of your listeners.
0: Yeah. And, and thank you for for being so, so detailed. I'm sure uh, a lot of our viewers now have a much better understanding of the Austrian school, um, which I think really helps in understanding your work as well. So in your latest book, you talk about the pursuit of liberal ideals, uh, the, the liberal ideals of justice, equality, liberty and so on. that are so deeply embedded in the American ethos since the inception of this nation. So obviously, no country can ever have a perfect justice system or perfect equality the united states arguably comes as close to achieving these ideals as any other civilization having abolished slavery set up robust protections for labor guaranteeing the right to a free trial having come so far sometimes it's hard to see exactly where progress is still needed so i wanted to start off by asking you specifically what you think are some areas in which there's still a lot of room for improvement with regards to those liberal ideals
1: yeah, so you know, it's important to understand the liberal ideals that I'm talking about trace back to Adam Smith and the Scottish Enlightenment, and then you know the British utilitarians like John Stuart Mill and the early you know 20th century liberal thinkers. So not uh, you know the sort of progressive liberalism that a lot of people talk about when they think about the U.S. and the and the Progressive Era and then the New Deal. Uh, liberalism of, of Roosevelt or whatever. Um, and so, you know, we have to go back to the original meanings of the terms um, and talk about the liberalism that's in Adam Smith, but also in John Locke and Montesquieu and, and, you know, these various thinkers. And that's the liberal project. And one of the best thinkers about contemporary liberalism is Deirdre McCloskey. And she has a wonderful book called, uh, you know, uh, uh, Why Liberalism Works. That Yale published in 2019, I think, and, and your readers, it's a very easy reading book, and your readers might might like that. But the the uh, the uh, or listeners, uh, the uh, ultimate aspect of a liberal system, which goes back to earlier antecedents that fed into, say, the American Revolution, um, are you know ideals that come through the Republican tradition and and issues like that, which have to do with. Um, A politics that is neither discriminatory nor exercises domination. And so where is it that uh, we go wrong? Uh, We go wrong in uh, vestiges of discriminatory politics that benefits some group at the expense of others. So I don't necessarily mean, uh, you know, or limit the term discrimination here to racial discrimination or religious discrimination. But the idea that you favor one group as opposed to another group let's say in economic transactions and you give special privileges to one group that would be discriminatory politics all right and that's called a rent-seeking society and we still in many ways have a lot of special privileges that are doled out by our government that's why people spend so much money in lobbying uh because the rewards are very high if you lobby and you get the government to give you special privileges and and Protections against your competitors in the marketplace, Um, and so this this aspect is an inconsistency of the American ideal. Another issue having to do with that is is also you know special when domination appears in various different uh, formal forms of of you know say uh, the way that maybe you know even like. Public safety issues are carried out, like some police or whatever. And so we have to think about the abuses that are involved in the militarism of the state and, and, and the use of the ultimate force of, 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 of power. So, you know, state officials that are here to provide us with public safety were never empowered to be judge, jury and executioner in their carrying out of the role of public of, of public safety. And so we have to look at the way in which the system is set up so that it, in fact, has these abuses and we have to do it. Think about our judicial system as well. You know, our judicial system has to be governed to always be the case that we'd much rather let a guilty party go free than ever convict an innocent man. That's a foundation of liberal judicial philosophy. Um, and if we move to a situation where we're empowering the prosecutors against the defense, then we're in trouble. And so we always have to be on guard because uh, the uh, incentives that are set up um, are such that it appeals to people that have power to exercise that power and to use it to benefit themselves and their ones that they've, the, the groups that they value versus the other other uh, groups. And so, this is the reason why, you know, you mentioned the American experience. I mean, go back to the Federalist Papers, and, you know, I, I'm going to give you, you know, three different sort of aspects from the Federalist Papers that are cr- critical to understanding the infrastructure of the institutions that are required to have a liberal society. So, the first one is from the very first Federalist paper by Hamilton, which is he puts down the following, you know, puzzle to the generation. He says, constitutions are going to be a, a consequence of either accident and force or reflection and choice. Which one are you going to rely on for your constitution? And obviously, we want to have our constitutions be a function of our reflection and choice and not of accident and force. So we constantly have to improve our public discourse so that we can understand the the aspects of the Constitution. That comes from Federalist number one. Federalist 10, all right, is worried about the whole issues having to do with factions, right? And, And the issues associated with how is it that you check power against other power, right? Because what was the perceived problem of the Articles of Confederation was that you could have big bosses... In these various different regions, and they would be unchecked. And so the idea that we were going to have now is we were going to checkmate power against other power. And so that leads to the phraseology that says that we have to have, um, you know, align the constitutional uh, rights with the constitutional place. Okay, And so that leads to sort of decentralization. So the way to think about it in modern economics is that you would align the size of the externality to the decision unit. So I don't need the federal government to pick up my garbage, but I might need the federal government to be able to handle national defense. And so we have a principle of of subsidiarity in which we have the states actually exercising their rights. But yet at the same time, we have a a union because of the different levels of government that are involved between, you know, local, uh, you know, state and then federal government. Okay. So that, and then, then 51 is the final constitutional puzzle, which is right. That if men were angels, there'd be no need for government. If government were to be run by angels, there'd be no need for constraints, but it's precisely because we are run by man ruling other men. We have to first empower and then constrain. And how is it that we know that we need to constrain is because we ourselves are rapacious and ambitious, and we know that others through reflection are rapacious and ambitious. And so that's why we have to checkmate, uh, you know, one another with our institutions. And so liberalism is an ideal, but it has to be instantiated by a set of institutions that make liberalism work. And that's the machinery of government that we have to study and examine. And so this is all comes out of the work in Adam Smith. But then F.A. Hayek, when he writes the Constitution of Liberty, or Jim Buchanan, when he writes the limits of liberty or the calculus of consent, this is a research program in which, you know, many of us are engaged in, which is exploring what is the appropriate institutional infrastructure within which economic freedom can flourish and do its job. So,
0: yeah. So something you touched on there um at the start was was the difference between um liberal in the classical sense um the adam smith sense and then liberal as we take it to mean now um so another term like that you use it extensively um throughout this and the book um is equality so i assume as an austrian economist um you mean equality of opportunity not equality of outcome however increasingly it seems as though The definition of equality has changed from the classical liberal sense in which the goal was to provide everyone with equal opportunities to succeed and empower them to make their own choices. There's been a lot of talk about wealth and income inequality and the fact that it's immoral for multimillionaires and billionaires to have so much money while so many Americans struggle financially. So as someone who uses the term so frequently in your work, I wanted to clarify your take on the equality of opportunity versus outcome debate and how our definitions of equality um, have changed.
1: So in the book you're talking about, um, you know, first of all, it's made up of a series of essays that I had the opportunity to give um, speeches um, that I had the opportunity to give throughout the 2000s. So from 2001 to 2020, all, all over the world, um, uh, because of positions that I had in leading learned societies or invitations to different universities or or whatnot. And um, and so, the title of the book, The Struggle, has two components to it. The first one is, as a scholar, I'm struggling to try to figure out how the world works. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's difficult. The world's complex. Uh, there's a lot of nuance in the way that the, the world operates. And so, we as scholars are constantly lifelong learners, or we should be, and we're trying to struggle and figure our way out. And, One of the most important words we can ever learn is I don't know. Um, And that means that we have to keep studying. And the second aspect of the term struggle is that um, as a citizen, so, you know, I'm I'm moving away from my job, strictly speaking, as a scientist, uh, but now as a citizen, that I believe wholeheartedly in the project to repair a broken world. And I think the way that we repair a broken world is through the liberal institutions. All right. Now, what do I mean by those liberal institutions? Well, the first and most fundamental of those is that we are one another's dignified equals. Uh, right. That we that we as humans um, and uh, are are dignified equals with one another. No one human has any claim. Ontological claim to superiority over another human being in the way that they um, interact with one another. And so, what are the institutions that allow us to treat each other as one another's dignified equals? Now, that doesn't mean that we are equals in terms of our uh, skill set, uh, in terms of our, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, mental acuities, um, or anything like that. There's vast differences. We are a tremendously heterogeneous, uh, you know, group of, of beings. And what freedom does is allow us to find those little gaps in which we can all engage in mutually beneficial interaction with each other. When I say we're dignified equals, that's we're dignified equals before the law. We're dignified equals before our God. Uh, you know, we're all God's creatures. Uh, you know, none of us are, are you know, given any special status in, in our interactions in that regard. But in order for us to have equal outcomes, let's say we're going to run a race, And I'm 61 years old right now. From your voice, you seem like you're much younger than me. And let's say we were going to line up and run a race. I'm 61 years old and arthritic. And we were going to line up and run a race. All right. Uh, In order for me to have the same outcome as you, we would probably have to do something to discriminate against you and treat you not as your dignified equal. You would have to give special privileges to me. Uh, in order to do that. And so, you know, what we need to do is is just not worry about uh, the the outcomes of a fair race. So the concern is the process. We need to have fairness in the process, not fairness in the outcomes. All right. And so in that regard, regard a sports analogy is very apt, right? I mean, when we set up the rules of the game, we don't set up the rules of the game in order to make sure that the home team wins the game, right? We, we let the game be played out under, you know, in the best of circumstances, you know, a neutral set of rules that are deemed, you know, as fair. And that's the key issue. So again, the focus is on the process. It's about the fairness of the process and not about the pattern of the outcomes. And that's the, that should be the focus of our attention when we deal with these inequities in the world. So many of the inequities in the world right now, you can't, you can't complain, as I did in the first few minutes of our podcast here, about the rent-seeking state, okay, in which the government has given special privileges to certain actors. Let's say in the uh, you know, financial industrial complex, right, where the big investment banks, for example, are allowed to privatize their profits, but socialize their losses, all right so you can't then explain that pattern of that outcome from when we've privatized profits but socialized losses therefore allowing people to gamble with other people's money and then try to say oh well that outcome is you know completely fair it's not fair because we've actually put the thumb on the scale in favor of one set of group and against other groups. So as an economist, what we wanna study is how, you know how did the thumb get put on the scale in the first place? And then what are the institutional remedies that may in fact take the thumb off the scale so that we can have fairness of the rules in the process. But then if the rules are fair, then the pattern of the outcomes is not the concern, it's the unfairness in the in the way the game is played because the rules are been skewed to favor some at the expense of others. And so there is a very serious problem of inequality, structural inequality in America that's caused by the rent-seeking state, not by the market. That, 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 that's that's the, the, the crucial issue to try to communicate.
0: Yeah, and I think this, the sports analogy really is, is highly effective in, in trying to visualize that. So now I wanted to move back a little bit to, to much of your research in your early career, which was focused on the Soviet Union and its downfall. So one of your earliest books in particular caught my attention titled Why Perestroika Failed. So for those of you who don't know, Perestroika was a policy that the USSR pursued right before the collapse of the Union, that substantially liberalized the economy. In theory, this should have alleviated a lot of the economic struggles um, the Soviet Union was facing and and made it much more prosperous. But instead, the country fell apart shortly after it took effect. So, Dr. Botek, can you please give us a bit of insight as to the reasons that impelled what should have been a successful economic policy to failure?
1: Yeah, well, so... You know, I, so I wrote a trilogy of books on the Soviet experience. The first book is on the first ten years. That was my first book. Uh, it's called "The Political Economy of Soviet Socialism," uh, and uh, and the subtitle is "The Formative Years." And then the second book was about the last decade of the Soviet system, uh, which is the why perestroika fail And then I never really wrote the third book, which was supposed to be about the operation of the Soviet system from 1928 to 1980s. Uh, But I ended up by writing a series of essays on a lot of those things. And that came out in a, a book called Calculation and Coordination. And then in the midst of that, I was involved also in the theoretical debate Uh, over uh, what's called the economic calculation problem of socialism. And I did a nine-volume reference work, which people can get a hold of at a library. It's too expensive to buy, you know, straight up, but it covers all the debates from Marx, you know, through Mises all the way up to, you know, modern times you know, two thousand or whatever. It's a nine-volume reference work on that, and then I also did a book on the experience of development planning, which was the effort to export socialism into Africa, Latin America, and and Asia, uh, related to the the geopolitics from 1950 to 1980. And so that's my basic, uh, you know, work that was done from let's say. 1990 until uh, you know the 2000s. Um, that's the forming of my my research career, and in my book Why Perestroika Failed, which is published in the in the early 90s, uh, what that book does is it looks at the experience coming out of Brezhnev into Gorbachev and what's called the treadmill of economic reforms. I mean, you have to keep in mind that the Soviet Union was experiencing uh, in everything since Stalin's death. So the Thaw generation of 1957. uh, So you have Khrushchev, then you have Brezhnev, and then you have uh, some very short term leaders followed Brezhnev's death. And then Gorbachev comes in, and um, and that whole and Gorbachev is who decided he was going to engage in two strategies. One of them was perestroika, which literally means uh, restructuring of the economy, and the other one is glasnost, which means public frankness. It doesn't necessarily mean. Uh, democracy. A lot of people got confused about that. But what it does mean is public frankness. We're going to be honest about our history. We're going to be honest about uh, politics and transparency or whatever. And so this was the idea that Gorbachev started in the mid-1980s. And he went through various different uh, reforms. And then in 1991, there was a uh, failed coup on Gorbachev as the old timers tried to uh you know take back power from him and then uh the legitimacy of the Soviet state um had lost its its abilities and so that led to the dissolution of the Soviet Union and Boris Yeltsin you know rising up Okay, so that's just some background history. Now let's get into perestroika. So the issue with perestroika that fundamentally undid it was, is that Gorbachev did not ever fully embrace the kind of opening up of the economy as you're talking about. All of the the measures were half measures. They were interventionist measures that maybe freed up the economy for a little bit but then they didn't like take care of other things. So one of the main things that we've learned from the failure of the perestroika period uh, was the issue having to do with what could be called uh, simultaneity, all right? That if I'm gonna privatize something, I also have to actually have like a rule of law in place. If I'm gonna try to have fiscal restraints, I'm gonna need to have, you know, also, you know, tight control of the money You know and whatnot so what they were doing during the period of perestroika and then after under the yeltsin regime let's say we go from 85 to 95 all right so you know we're so just think about from 91 you know at that time when the soviet union collapsed the official exchange rate between the ruble and a dollar was 182 rubles to a dollar By mid-1990s, it was over 5,000 rubles to a dollar. And this was at a time then when Russia was telling the world that they were engaged in monetarism. But of course, they're not engaged in monetarism because one of the things monetarism is is to actually, you know, con, you know, control the money supply. But what was going on during that period is Garoshenko, who was the head of the Central Bank of Russia, was just printing and printing and printing money. All right, and this led to you know all kinds of distortions in the macro economy. And so the, one of the main issues with the Soviet socialist economy was that the m- microeconomic inefficiencies of the system, of the system of planning, were papered over by the macroeconomic imbalances, right, that associated with their issues of the, their, their public finances, and their monetary system. And so they had this huge problem of a of the ruble overhang issue. They had uh I mentioned before 180 to 182 uh to uh, uh, one ruble to 180 do- 180 rubles to a dollar, but the reality was is the official rate before the collapse was one to one. So that already tells you that they you know they were they were uh you know they're um, were not valuing their currency correctly in the way that they dealt with it. I was at the in in Moscow and um, at the Academy of Sciences, and I was I was trying to stay out of the black market and stay only in the official market so that I could you know experience what it would be like to live in an extreme example of of, of the system, and I was on this at the Central Telegraph, which is where you exchange currencies, and there was black market dealers along the lines, trying to get you to, you know, exchange your currency differently than before you went up, uh, you know, and did the one-to-one currency transaction. So it was quite fascinating to see it all unfold. Unfortunately for the people that, as I talk about in my book, um, there were issues of incentive incompatibility with the policies and also time inconsistency with the policies. So they were both incentive incompatible and also time inconsistent which meant that they ended up by creating all kinds of confused signals and why it is that a state shortage of buns and a state shortage of sausage became a sandwich sold in the black market. And so just to finish up here, in 1987, Gorbachev passed the law of cooperatives. The law of cooperatives should have suggested that you could go out and start your own business. In many ways, it was saying that, uh, all acts between consenting capitalist adults are now legal, uh, but they pay differential tax rates. So if you were in, if you kept yourself in the state state-sponsored economy, your tax rate was going to be different than if you went into the sort of entrepreneurial economy. So instead of going into the official entrepreneurial economy, instead what people did was go into the underground economy, and so that was because of the mis- mismatch of the of the laws. With the importance of the policies that needed to be passed in order to get a vibrant market economy going. And that's what created all the problems under Gorbachev. It led to the undoing of the system, the internal contradictions of it, which is why the system ended up by failing.
0: Yeah, I, I think it's it's super interesting um, the this whole Soviet Union story. I wanted to get a bit of background um, from you tomorrow. We have um, joining us um, a, a one of the senior economists from the Soviet Union who actually um, was directly behind creating the policy of, of Perestroika. So if you're interested, um, please do tune into that. I, I think it's going to be really interesting, especially if the Soviet Union is something that interests you. Um, but anyway, those are all the. questions. have one? Um, I think I think his name is Yuri Maltsev. Oh yeah, he wrote the preface to my first book. Yeah. Um, so uh, How funny s- is
1: that? That's a funny world. Tell Yuri I said hello. Uh I but yes, will. I mean, he he was uh he was a major player. He he left the Soviet Union while the Soviet Union still existed. He came here in the United States. Um, but you know, again, like, and Yuri can tell you about this: Gaidar, Jabai, all of those people were people that thought about economics in many ways, but they never could wrap their heads around. You know what I was talking about early in terms of the fundamental role of property prices and profit loss, and so you know they 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 wanted to have prices, but they didn't want to have private property rights, right? They wanted to you know somehow have you know the the lure of profits and innovation, but they want to, didn't want to deal with the issue of losses, right? And so you had all these dysfunctions built into the policies that were adopted, and rather than the idea that they were adopting the right policies to improve. The outcomes in the economy and so that's what ultimately was the end of it and you'll have a great conversation with your he's very very knowledgeable
0: yeah um okay uh, I'll, I'll definitely tell him you you said hello um but those are all the questions that I have for you today. Um, it's, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. So thank you so, so much for joining us on the show.
1: Yeah, I greatly appreciate you taking the time and talking to me. And, um, you know, your listeners, if I can just make one last plug you're, I have an, another book out recently, which is on money and the rule of law. It's published by Cambridge University Press with Alex Salter and Dan Smith. We're, we're co-authors on this. And uh, it would be, you know, your readers might very much enjoy looking at that book uh, because it relates a lot to the sort of policies that they're reading or listening to when they listen to the news today and how we're trying to uh, deal with the issues coming out of the financial crisis in 2008, but then also the global pandemic and its relationship to monetary policy. So um, and if anyone wants to ask me any more questions, they can reach me at my George Mason University email.
0: Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.